Good morning, everyone. It's uh, uh, so this morning I um, was across at Verdun sharing there, um, uh, particularly around Beyond, and some of my thoughts and feelings around that, and just encouraging them as they work towards a vote that's happening in a couple of weeks that has particular significance and re uh, relevance for them. Um, and it was exciting to be there, but it's also there's something very powerful about walking into a room of people worshipping God. You just walk in and you hear it from the car park and then you come in and during that last song and that last verse to hear this kind of rise in people's voices as our hearts declare the goodness and the grace of God. It's a good thing. So it's good to be here. Okay. Let me get my notes open, get my head together and we'll get going. Um, so before I get going this morning, uh, just a reminder of a couple of things. Firstly, that uh, we're doing memory verses every week. It's old school, it's Sunday school, but it's not Sunday school because memorizing scripture and knowing it is such a powerful thing. So we're going to do it even though it seems a little maybe old-fashioned, but sometimes old-fashioned things are very powerful things. So last week's memory verse, a little bit of controversy here because I think I swapped it. And I decided on a different one to what I first said. So I'm not exactly sure. Has anyone memorised the memory verse? <laughs> so you think you have? Which one was it? That's the question I had. Which one did we go with? Chapter 2, verse 20, verse... No, not John 3.16. Though there is a famous story of me forgetting that verse, which was the punchline for a sermon. I shouldn't be getting into storytelling now, but I did tell us to a sermon one where the whole sermon once where the whole punchline was for me to say, and this just all brings us back to John 3.16, the most well-known verse in scripture, which goes. And I blanked in that moment. True story. Uh, so I think it was Romans 2. Did we go with verse 1? You therefore have no excuse? Five, verse five. Okay, but because of. So someone to have a go? But because of this, yes? I won't throw them this time. When his yes, full stop. That's it. Well done. Could you please go and pass that to Debbie? For those that were here last week, they—that's why you would understand why people laugh. Then, for those that weren't here last week, I was throwing out the caramel koalas, and managed to hit the most elderly person in our church in the head. <laughs> I did call up midweek and apologised. She's not here today. There's not a break in relationship. <laughs> she was just unable to come, just unable to come this week and next week. She'll be back. <laughs> I did call up and say, I'm sorry for hitting you in the head with a koala. She said, I'm sorry, I really don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> But we got there in the end. And by the way, Mavis, who sits in the back on the aisle, 
is the most lovely lady. She is a gem. She's not the most lovely lady. There's a lot of lovely ladies, but she is a lovely lady. My wife is a lovely lady. Really lovely. The Word of God. Let's get into it. Well, let me start with a story. So on a, on a plane late last year or sometime last year, I watched the movie Dunkirk. Who's seen the movie Dunkirk? Uh, Dunkirk is um, uh, a movie that, that is the, about the historical event that happened in World War II when uh, the Allied forces were um, uh, retreating at, at the point of their, their lowest point, really, and they retreated back away from, uh, was it World War I? World War II, World War II. They were retreating uh, away from, from France back into England when they then regathered uh, strength and then came back. But uh, they, a whole bunch of people, like hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, possibly a couple of million, were gathered on one beach, Dunkirk. They were so close to England, they could see, they could see across to the White Cliffs of Dover. But they were trapped. They were trapped. There was no way that they could swim across. There was no way uh, the transport wasn't able to come and get uh, access to the beach. Um, no, no big ships could come in and, and make their way. And the, it's just a compelling film um, because you've got, you've got this picture at the start of these people just, just standing there in abject hopelessness, knowing there's no way, nowhere for them to go. They can't go that way because that takes them back in line with the German forces. They can't go into the water. They're going to drown. They can't swim across. There is nowhere for them to go, and they are standing there as sitting ducks on the beach. And then there's this scene in the movie where, uh, where what happens, and I'm not going to give too much, well, I don't need to worry about giving it away because everyone probably knows the story, but the, the British rallied thousands and thousands of small ships uh, to sail across just people with their own little yachts and ferries and just different things and they all came across this flotilla of boats and uh, they're standing there with this hopelessness and they're looking at one of the leading uh, captains and he's looking across and they say to him what do you see and he says hope I see hope and you know I, I think this movie somehow captures the scriptures that I've been preaching through in the last few weeks about our position before God without Jesus. We're kind of like those soldiers. We think maybe we could go that way and that's gonna, we can save ourselves. It's not going to happen. We can't go this way. We're like them on the beach in need of someone to come and be a saviour. And movies are interesting because when you think about movies, so often the storyline is about people who are in a situation of hopelessness, who are unable to save themselves, about, a, about the, that reach a point where evil is dominating and there's this longing for a saviour who will, who will come. And then the saviour comes and brings hope. And it, it's almost like uh, scripture says, God has set eternity in our hearts. It's almost like there's something in this human heart that connects with this story, that is always going to connect with this story because it taps into the deepest truth about who we are and where we stand, and our need for a saviour. And sometimes we want to be that saviour. And, and how many of us have, uh, you know, in our childhood, you know, you put the 
undies on outside the tracky pants and tuck the towel in and walk around the house doing this. Okay, I might have just been the only one. Thinking that you're Superman. Uh, don't do that anymore. Uh, but but uh, we are not able to save ourselves. And, and I'm going to preach this sermon in two parts. And the first part is really the final conclusion of the first couple of chapters of Romans, where it is just this profound revelation of our position and status before God without Jesus. Starting from verse 9, if we can bring up the scripture. It says, what shall we conclude then in the light of all that's been explained in chapters 1 and 2, the first part of chapter 3, which sort of explains that, that the law can't save us and that the, the Jews' position just as being Jews can't save them, that the Gentiles, uh, God should, has been revealed to them in creation and it should be obvious to them. And so it says this, starting at verse 10, uh, what shall we conclude then? As it is written, it says, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what we see in these verses, first thing to, to say, I, my slides didn't work, but I, I had one slide that had this scripture and the second slide, slide was going to have alongside it the old testament scripture that this is referencing so every single line in this section here is why it says as it is written every little line from this is taken from the old testament taken from the scripture so it's though, it's though that the jews were reliant on the law they say you look back at the old testament we've we've got the law but then paul uses the old testament scripture to highlight the fact that throughout the old testament it is revealed to them that no one is righteous and what we see in this scripture is three things. First is the pervasiveness of sin. That sin affects everything. It affects uh, the, the tongues and it affects the mouth, what is spoken. And it, it affects the feet, which affects where we go. And the throats, which are revealing what's inside. So inside and what's on our lips and what's on our feet. The whole person, sin has pervaded us as people, as humanity and at the whole of creation. Secondly, it tells us about the, universa the universality of sin. We, we see no one, not even one. There is no one. There is no one. All have turned away. It, it just repeats. It's, this is not some are not righteous, but others make the grade. The, the clarity here is that everyone is in the same boat or on the same beach to use my earlier example everyone is in the same position the third thing that this reveals is the ungodliness of sin in that sin is at its heart a turning away from god not just doing bad things most people if they understand what sin is a lot of christians and certainly non-christians if you say well what is sin 
The answer would be doing bad things. Sin at its heart is not doing bad things. Sin as its heart is turning away from God. It's rejection of God. And that is what we see in these scriptures. Verse 19 says this, for, for now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now, uh, the picture we have here, and then it says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What it's saying here is, is uh, it reminds me of a scripture, a story that Jesus told, where he told the story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. And one man went up and he said, uh, he, he threw himself down at God's mercy. I am a sinner. The other man said, thank you, Lord, that I am not like this sinner. You know, I, I tithe my, my money and I do this and I do that. Thank you that I'm not like this sinner. And Jesus tells the story, well, which one went home justif justified by God? Well, it's, it's the sinner. And that is actually the purpose of the law, because when you look at the perfection of the law and the perfection of God, and you put yourself in the light of that, the right response is to go, wow, the law has just shown me that I need to throw myself on the mercy of God. And so in the end, we have this picture, and I want you to picture it with me. The picture is of like a, a great plane, a great plane and on spread out on the plane are millions of people and God stands there as a judge and he reads out his law and he declares his character and he says who is worthy who is right before me who is perfect and spotless and sinless before me and therefore can come into my presence and be with me eternally and and you could imagine that there would be people who straight away would be silenced straight away would hang their heads say there's no way there's no way that I'm in that boat. There's no way that I can speak up and say, yes, that's me. There would be others, perhaps moral people, who would mount a defence for a time. You know, I've been a good person, but, but then as they got closer to God and his glory and his presence, you could imagine they too would be silenced. And then perhaps there's, there's uh, the, 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 the people of Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people who would be going forward saying, we have the law, we have the covenant, we, we, we've got all this. But then again, they too are silenced. And perhaps the, the last ones to progress would be the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders. But I am a religious leader. Yet, as they hear this pronouncement made, ultimately, every mouth is silenced. And God's judgment has been revealed. Um, they are all, we are all, the scripture says, like the soldiers on the beach. There is no hope within ourselves to save ourselves. So, where is the hope in that passage? The hope in the passage is... Like when you go outside at night and look up at the stars. The blackness of the sky reveals the brilliance of the light. When it's cloudy, you don't see the stars. When you're in the city and there's all this distraction of the ambient light of the city, 
you don't see the stars in all their glory. But in the light of the blackness, if you go out into the country, if you go into the desert and you look up at the stars, what's it like? It is magnificent. And the beauty of what I get to share with you this morning is I move on to part B, the second part of this message, which is the magnificence of the gospel. So we read from verse 21. This is the second part. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between religious and unreligious. There's no difference between uh, are those who are moral and those who are immoral, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where did I leave my drink? Right there. Um, thank you, darling. <laughs> so, let me spell this out and let me explain this because it's awesome. By the way, someone has said that this particular passage of Scripture... By the way, can we have the air conditioners on? Is it, are they on? Because it's really hot up here. Okay. Someone has said that this passage of Scripture is the greatest paragraph ever written. The Romans is the greatest presentation of the Gospel. The Romans 1 to 8 is the greatest part of the greatest presentation of the gospel and that this paragraph is at the center of the whole thing and it says this but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been made known now there's some big words in here and I'm going to explain these and I'm going to actually paint some pictures for you but the first thing I've got to describe to you is is this thing about the righteousness of God because in my old bible my old NIV it says the righteousness from God and in my new NIV it says the righteousness of God. It was very interesting. Some versions say righteousness from God, some say righteousness of God. Let me explain to you I, I, something I find very interesting and hopefully you will too. What is this about? How can it change? What is it, what's the difference? And it, basically there's a, a theological discussion around what is the focus is here in terms of righteousness. Righteousness being rightness essentially, being right, being right. And, and some say what this is focusing on here is who God is. What is being made, made known is who God is. So the, the focus here is the identity of God, that God is right in himself. His character is perfect. He is perfectly right in, in who he is. Some, of you, some say, no, there's a slight change here, that the righteousness of God is about um, how God acts. So it's not just about who he is, it's how he acts. In everything he does, he does the right thing. He always acts right. He always acts perfectly. He always acts purely. His act is always an act of holiness. 
It's so different to us, hey? So it says, no, this is, this is the righteousness of God being revealed because it's revealing who he is. Some say, no, it's the righteousness of God because it's revealing how he acts. And then others say, no, it's the righteousness from God because the focus here is the fact that his rightness is being given. Uh, what God has done is in focus. What he has done is to give his righteousness to us. And as some theologians would say, which is it? All three. All three. What's being revealed here is that God is right in who he is. God is right in everything he does. And that God is, uh, has given his righteousness. It's coming from him. What we cannot do for ourselves, God is doing for us through faith in Jesus. So that key verse there is uh, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to who? To all who believe. And um, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, this is your memory verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And I'm going to guess some of you are going to get a caramello koala next week because of that. But I want to, I want to say this. Uh, this passage is full of big words. Uh, justified, redemption, and either the word uh, propitiation, uh, which uh, the NIV uses a phrase, sacrifice of atonement. So we, I'm going to use that. Redemption, justified redemption, and sacrifice of atonement. Now, some people, when they come across big words like that, theological words, their eyes light up. They're just like, love it. They could talk theology all day long. But the truth is, for some of us, big words are a turnoff. They confuse us. They just sound like theological jargon. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you on a journey. I want to take you on a journey to understand these words better. And the journey that I want to take you on is a journey through a city. Through a city. A city, any city really, in the first century, a Roman city. Through the city of Rome itself, we could imagine. Or say through the city of Jerusalem. Because that's what Paul's doing here. The three words he uses, justification, redemption and atonement, take us to three different places in the city. And uh, I did have a slide for this, each one, but you're going to have to use your creativity to come on the journey with me. The first place we go is into a law court. We can all picture a law court. It was different in the first century, but a law court, the, the essentials remain the same. We have a judge. We have someone on trial. And we have someone bringing charge against that person. I want you to picture, if you will, a law court in your mind. You, you got the picture? You see, justification is a legal term. Justification is a legal term. And the, the picture that we need to have is not of us just standing aside from that or at the back of the room looking. The picture we need to have is that we are the one in the dock. It's okay. The picture we need to have is that we are the one in the dock. And the charge has been brought against us by the judge, by God. The charge is the passage I just read about no one being righteous, about all having turned away. And now the judgment comes. The judgment comes. And this 
And to be justified is the opposite of being condemned. To be justified is to be declared innocent. So there's two options, condemnation or innocence. You've just heard the passage that I read before, no one is righteous, all have turned away, and now you wait for the judgment to be made. But then this scripture comes, that actually that justification can come through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the judge brings the charge, and the judge says, I declare you to be innocent, justified. Just like we use that word, this person was justified in their actions. Their actions were justified. It's a legal term. The declaration comes, you have been declared innocent. And it's a striking contrast between what has just come and now what is declared for us. And the interesting point to make here is that we're not declared by the judge, this person is guilty, but I've decided just to let them off the hook. Right? Because a judge that does that is what sort of judge? A rubbish judge. An unjust judge. Can you imagine if a judge says, this person is guilty, but hey, I don't really care about justice. They can just go free. That's not the declaration that is made to us through faith in Jesus. The declaration through faith in Jesus is this, justified, innocent. That's what justified means. Are you with me? It's a hot day. A few people are tuning out. You with me, Abby? Excellent. (laughs) Here's the second part. How did communion go, Abby? Okay, great. Here's the second scene. We leave the law court. We leave the law court. We're going to a second place. We're going to a market. Who's been to a market? Everyone. You can picture a market. Market is busy. It's noisy. There's buying and selling going on. But this market's not a normal market. This is the slave market. Redemption comes from the language used in the slave market. And what this is saying that Jesus has done for us is saying that we were the slave. We were the slave on sale. Can you picture a slave on sale standing there, shackled because the owner of that slave wouldn't want the slave to escape and slip into the crowd? Shackled and standing there with people coming to view the slave, to observe, to make a judgment on that slave. Will I buy this slave? How much is this slave worth? What is the price that needs to be paid for this slave? Now, a slave would would stand there, head bowed, defeated, a product for sale. The gospel that I'm revealing to you this morning through this scripture says that what what could happen, the one hope for that slave was perhaps because a lot of slaves ended up in slavery because of poverty, because they had a debt they couldn't repay. And the hope for that slave would be that someone would come in and would say, I have have raised the money. I have the price here. I have the funds to redeem this slave. And I have come, slave, to buy you back, to redeem you, so that you can take the shackles off that slave. I am willing to pay the price for that slave. And the Bible here, the second image says that through faith in Jesus, the shackles are removed and through Christ, Christ has paid the price. 
and that we can actually walk free. Let's get out of this market. Let's walk away. Get the shackles off this slave. We have been pronounced free, redeemed. Is this good news? This is unbelievable. And then we've got to go to the third place. Because the third place clarifies a very important question that is raised before in the picture of the courthouse. Who is this judge? What sort of justice is this? Because frankly, at this point in the scripture, if I was really following it, I would be saying, this judge is unjust. He takes guilty people and just says, oh, they're innocent. And I'd be saying to myself, what was the price paid to redeem this slave? What sort of slave can be redeemed from turning against God completely? What sort of price would be required? Who could just come and say, oh yeah, here's some money, here's something that could redeem us from that great place of sin? And that's where the third place takes us, to the temple. The temple. You've got to picture now a temple. It could be the temple of Jerusalem and, and the sacrifices made, but sacrifices were made at temples for all kinds of gods. But the, the, the same thing would happen. Someone would bring a sacrifice that would be a worthy sacrifice for the sin they had committed. And that sacrifice would be slaughtered and the blood would be shed and it would be deemed that a sufficient sacrifice had been made for the forgiveness of that sin. And maybe a dove would suffice. Or maybe a lamb would be required. Or maybe a bull would be required. Each time an increase in value. And what sort of sacrifice would be sufficient? And obviously a sacrifice would need to be always a perfect sacrifice. You couldn't just bring the worst lamb broken and mangled and just the worst from the flock and think that that's going to do it. It would need to be a perfect spotless sacrifice. What sort of sacrifice would be sufficient so that God's justice could be, uh, could be, um, lost my words, God's, just, God's justice could be proved and yet God's mercy could be shown. What sort of animal, what sort of person, what thing could be found? And the answer is nothing other than for God to himself step into the picture. And this is where scripture, it fits together so incredibly beautifully and so perfectly because what no one could actually do for themselves, God himself enters the picture and Jesus comes into this world and sacrifices his own life for us. He becomes the perfect sacrifice Jesus' mission was to live a sinful life and to die a sacrificial death. That's why Jesus came. Let me bring a summary to this. This is quoting John Stott. He says this, The antithesis or the opposite, the polar difference, polar extreme between grace and law, mercy and merit, faith and works, God's salvation and self-salvation is absolute. No compromising mishmash is possible. We are obliged to choose. Non-Christian movements think of the movement of man towards God. Luther called this uh, climbing up to the majesty on high. Similarly, mysticism, a mystical religion, imagines that the human spirit can soar aloft towards God. And so does moralism and so does philosophy and very similar is the self-confident 
optimism of all non-Christian religion. I can get there in the end. None of these has seen or felt the gulf which yawns between the holy God and sinful, guilty human beings. Only when we have glimpsed this do we grasp the necessity of what the gospel proclaims, namely the self-movement of God, his free initiative of grace, his descent, his amazing act of condescension. To stand at the rim of the abyss, to despair utterly of ever crossing over, this is the indispensable antechamber of faith. When the soldier stand on the beach, when we are one of those soldiers standing on the beach of Dunkirk going, we cannot get out of this situation. We need a saviour. Is when we see Christ coming and his sacrifice on the cross and it makes sense to us because we finally accept that it's not done on our own. It is an act of the mercy and grace of God and that it is received in faith just received just with our hands out like i said last week we are beggars that is true not a work done by us but simply to hold out our hands and into our hands god places salvation received by faith and i just want to say coming out of this two things the first is this god loves you more than you could ever know we often say that but I just hope that this morning you've grasped it. God loves you more than you could ever know and God has done more for you, for you than you will ever grasp. Even those of us who have lived by faith for many years and studied the scriptures, we don't really grasp the fullness of what God has done for us. This is grace, God's unmerited favour. So I would say to you, if anyone sits this morning in the antechamber of faith and has understood for the first time the fullness of of what God has done for you, receive it as a gift. Come and talk to me and say, Mark, I have made sense of this. I've received it as a gift and I want to receive it as a gift. But most of us here are Christians, right? Most of us here are believers. But we need to keep hearing this. Because what happens is there's something in the Christian heart where we believe the right beliefs that we're saved by grace. But unless we keep coming back to the gospel, something about us keeps turning it back in our thinking to think that we're actually saved by our works. It's so easy for us to make that switch. Oh yeah, do you believe saved by grace through faith? Tick, yes, I believe that. And then we go out on a Monday and we start living as though we're actually saved by works. And in our thinking, we lose sight of the grace of God. And so that is why I believe it is so important to keep preaching the gospel over and over and over. That's why it is so important that we keep singing the words of the gospel over and over and over. It's why we need to keep reading about and listening to the gospel be proclaimed over and over. It's why we should keep wanting to share the gospel over and over. We should let it define our life, let its power seep into every part of our being. The knowledge that we have a saviour, we have a rescuer, we have a redeemer, and his name is Jesus Christ. I don't know whether we've sung, have we sung Living Hope yet or are we going to sing it? 
That is perfect because I'm going to read the lyrics out. How about we stand on our feet? Have a little, have a little shake of the shoulders to wake up if you're a bit warm and hot. And I want you to hear these words before we sing them. The lyrics of Living Hope. Listen to this. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine such great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Saviour, I am yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Or you can't say it better than that. Let's uh, sing the gospel together. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.